Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming, and for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Jean Lowe, to Ann Killian, Christy Lee, Kelly O'Connell, Andriette Duplessis, Matthew Dubé, and Samantha for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to an interview on financial crimes with financial crime compliance expert Vincent Godal. I've covered a few financial crimes on the podcast, and each time that I do, I'm struck by the immense ramifications these crimes have. Violent crimes are, of course, the same. The ripples spread out for generations and to innumerable secondary and tertiary victims. But I found that this is almost more so with financial crimes. And it's not just the loss of money that's a crime. It's a loss of trust, potential, hope, and sometimes even life. When that loss of money and the crime impacts people's physical and mental health. Of course, the bigger the reach of the crime, the greater and further the impact. To try and contextualize this interview with Vincent, I thought we could look at a financial crime that South African citizens all have some level of knowledge of, and have and continue to still be impacted by. Generally, the case would be known as state capture. In legal terms, it would be the case called the State versus Atul, Rajesh, and A.J. Gupta. Now, I want to say that if you know my podcast, you know I don't get political, and this is no different. This alleged crime is not political. Yes, one of the people allegedly involved, the then State President Jacob Zuma, was aligned with a political party. But for me, this is not about political allegiances or who held which party card at the time of the alleged crimes. 
The allegations here are far bigger than a ballot box or a party shirt. And if and when proven in court, this really would be the mother of all frauds. Because essentially the accused parties defrauded an entire nation and changed the trajectory of life in South Africa for millions of people. You don't get much more monumental than that. So if you're worried that true crime South Africa has suddenly gone political, no, it hasn't, and never will. This is still a victim-focused podcast with a view to empowering South Africans against crime. And in that vein, this case is probably ideal to discuss, because I'm a victim, and so are you. Every single one of us is. We were all stolen from if these allegations are proven, and thus, we are all victims. And in this episode, I hope, with the expertise and advice from Vincent Gardell, to give us all some tools to work toward ensuring this never, ever happens again, on a small scale or one this big. Of course, it's important to note that both Jacob Zuma and all three Gupta brothers deny all allegations against them, and in the eyes of the law they are innocent until proven guilty in a trial. So what we'll be discussing here is the mass of evidence that has already made it into the public domain and the conclusions that have been drawn from that evidence. At some point, when we're able to bring all four to court for a trial in some context, a ruling will be made and we'll know whether they are legally guilty or not guilty. Of course, there's what you know and what you can prove. And those two aren't always the same thing. But that's a story for a different day. Today I want to outline what could be one of the biggest frauds in the world. How it might have happened, what impacts crimes like these truly have, and how we can all work toward a less fraudulent future. In 2013, a single tweet from journalist Barry Bateman brought the Gupta family to South Africa's attention. The tweet was about the very odd occurrence of a private family, the Guptas, using a South African military airbase to receive wedding guests they were hosting at a very lavish ceremony at Sun City. Although mentions had been made in the public space before that certain members of the Gupta family seemed to have very close ties to certain politicians and possibly questionable privileges as a result of those relationships. The Waterkloof Airbase scandal was just an example of that which really seemed to resonate with South Africans. And slowly but surely, over the months and years that followed, people began to come forward and evidence started to emerge that would eventually lead South Africa to the conclusion that it was possible that while Jacob Zuma was president of our country from 2009 to 2018, his relationships with members of the Gupta family may have led to fraudulent transactions which may have plundered state coffers of billions of rands and resulted in substandard service being delivered, if at all, 
in countless government tenders. The Gupta family moved to South Africa from India in the mid to late 1990s. The last brother, Rajesh, arrived in 1997. Soon after they arrived, they started their company Sahara Computers, which became Sahara Holdings. Over the years, they built an empire in the country, which included Oak Bay Investments, TNA Media, which owned the New Age newspaper, JIC Mining Services, and Wusisiwe Media. They would also purchase stakes in other business concerns, including, but not limited to, the oddly named Pyramid Trading 11. It's alleged that the three Gupta brothers met the then Deputy President Jacob Zuma in 2002. Several business agreements would fall in place between the members of the Gupta family and members of the Zuma family thereafter. It's been alleged that after Zuma took presidency in 2009, the Gupta brothers were never far from his ear. Several cabinet members would later allege that the Gupta brothers seemed to be deeply involved in decision-making at the presidential level, and a home in Saxonwald owned by the brothers was a place many of them were summoned to for instructions. Allegations were made that specific posts in the cabinet were allocated to Gupta-aligned parliament members, and some who turned down posts when they realised there were terms and conditions attached were later fired without warning. It would later come to light that the wedding fiasco, essentially being successfully swept under the rug, really pushed the corrupt deals that appeared to be happening into overdrive. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about each and every allegation facing the Gupta brothers, but they include, but aren't limited to, a 4.4 billion rand deal with Transnet and a 38 million rand purchase of a coal mine with the assistance of ESCOM. In 2016, when allegations came to light from a whistleblower in the finance ministry, that the Gupta brothers had been actively orchestrating decisions that should have been made for the country's highest good to instead financially benefit them, South Africa had to sit up and take notice. As more and more evidence came to light that the country's coffers had been plundered by the politically connected brothers, they left South Africa for Dubai, still insisting that they were innocent of any wrongdoing. An inquest was launched into the allegations of state capture, which has had disappointing results. But both Jacob Zuma and the three Gupta brothers have been charged with various crimes relating to fraud and also including money laundering for the Guptas. The charges against Zuma relate to a 1999 arms deal in which the Guptas haven't been directly implicated. The Gupta brothers' charges relates to just one of the identified cases, a 25 million rand alleged fraud and money laundering involving the Free State Department of Agriculture. In 2022, Interpol issued a red notice for the Gupta brothers as wanted persons in South Africa, and in June 2022, Dubai police arrested Rajesh and Atul Gupta, on the basis of this international arrest warrant. 
as at October 2023, South African authorities are still trying to negotiate the extradition of the brothers with Dubai authorities, who have refused to do so up until this point. So this is the background framework to this rather large alleged case of fraud, money laundering, and corruption. Probably one of the largest frauds in the world in terms of scale, and most definitely the most deeply impacting for South Africa as a country. With that in mind, let's now get into my discussion with Vincent Gaudel about financial crimes. Uh, so hi, everyone. My name is Vincent Godel. I work as a financial crime compliance expert with LexisNexis Risk Solutions. I'm based in Paris, France, and essentially for the within the group, I, um, I'm in charge of monitoring the regulatory trends in the financial crime space, which include both uh, international sanctions as well as anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism uh, regulations. Um, and I like to describe my role as really being at the crossroads between the regulatory uh, requirements and expectations and the more operational challenges faced by compliance teams in the, in the financial sector and beyond. I come from the financial sector prior to joining the group, and, and therefore I am really have that uh, compliance perspective to share within our own teams to develop the best compliance products and the best data uh, for our customers to really address those uh, those challenges and that important goal of uh, mitigating financial crime risks. So Vincent works for LexisNexis Risk Solutions and his wide range of experience in identifying and preventing financial crime is going to help us to do two things here. Firstly, understand how these crimes sometimes happen and the repercussions of them. And secondly, to understand how we as average South Africans can help to reduce the risk of financial crime for us. And also on a larger scale, like we saw in the case I just discussed. I asked Vincent to start off with the case against the Gupta brothers and give us some of his insights into it. With Vincent's field of work, he has a deeper understanding of the global impact of financial crimes like this and how everyone can work to prevent financial crimes in various parts of the world. So I think there, there has been abundant press coverage and it's obviously like a, a landmark case in, in South Africa. But from my standpoint, from my area of, of expertise, it's rather an, an interesting case to illustrate, you know, the importance of global standards against against financial crime. And so I'd like to reflect uh, on that case uh, from that standpoint, looking at to, to what extent and in, in what ways does it illustrate the need for a sound framework uh, uh, against financial crime. So, so really, for, I think it's important to view the fight against financial crime as a, as a global fight and as a global issue. And by global, I mean both global in the geographical sense, right? We have seen with the Gupta cases and in many instances, the financial flows and the financial criminals, they, they run across borders, right? They don't stop at your borders and they go overseas. So it's critical that you both have like a global set of rules, global standards that exist uh, across countries. And that really are, are complied with, right? You need you need level playing field, so uh, there is no loophole and then safe houses for for the proceeds of crimes. And it's actually one of the one of the building blocks for the FATF standards. You have uh, 
the important block of international cooperation. And that includes mutual legal assistance that goes both ways, right? And um, mechanisms to uh, allow for extradition of financial criminals uh, that uh, fly outside of your borders. I'm, I'm mentioning that because obviously uh, some of the uh, persons that are charged in the Gupta cases uh, f uh, flew outside of the country. And uh, interestingly enough, so I'm talking about the, the, the UAE here. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, the extradition treaty was uh, only uh, recently uh, ratified, uh, and I believe it, it entered into force in, in July of 2021. And so I, I believe that's really the, the both the Gupta case and the FADEF assessment were strong drivers to, to really um, expedite the ratification of that treaty, right? But unless you have that treaty, you cannot really get those charged persons back to your country and they cannot be, be held accountable for their crimes. So I think that that's really, uh, like the Gupta case provided an interesting illustration on the importance of having those uh, mechanisms in place and international cooperation in place, right? The extradition treaty with the United Arab Emirates, or UAE, which Vincent mentions here, is the main reason we're both still waiting for the Gupta brothers to be extradited, and also the reason we have a chance that they will be. In April this year, the extradition request was rejected by the UAE, but it did so because as part of the treaty, the official warrant of arrest for the persons had to accompany the application, and ours did not. Yes, we got the paperwork wrong. The UAE has said that we may resubmit the request with the correct paperwork, and hopefully that will then be approved. The treaty signing in 2021 came as a direct result of both South Africa and the UAE being identified as hotspots for financial crimes. Both parties hoped that this would, at least in the long run, help to improve their international image in that respect. In 2022, the Financial Action Task Force, or FATF, did include the UAE on its grey list, which means that the UAE will be under closer monitoring for possibly housing financial criminals. In February 2023, South Africa was unfortunately also added to that list. Now, let me tell you, as someone who's worked with clients in other countries and had to go through the rigmarole of trying to bring money into South Africa, and then also seeing how my colleagues living in the US or Canada don't have such difficulties, this issue most definitely affects the average South African. We definitely don't need any more hoops to jump through to earn a living. Of course, this list is something you only make it to if you haven't already had some really basic guidelines in place internally in your country. And that's where the issue starts. Financial criminals and money launderers will identify countries where they know they can get away with what they want to. But that's one piece of the puzzle, so to speak, right? They, they... The, the, the challenge is also like, I mean, the, the globality uh, of the issue is also in, in, in terms of the, the, the global framework, the global set of actors and mechanisms that need, that need to be in place. To some extent, international cooperation comes at the end of the spectrum, right? But you also have to, it starts with a clear set of rules, right? So you need to have clear laws uh, that are 
comprehensive and clear that yeah really set set out the rules right then you need you need to have a set of competent authorities uh, that are here to enforce those rules right in between in the middle of that framework you have the private sector that is in charge of complying with these rules implement the requirements detect what may be suspicious file some reports to to the competent authorities so that you can have uh, investigation you can have prosecution conviction and ultimately you can recover the illicit proceeds and actually uh, convicting the financial criminals right but so it's so really it's a uh, illustrates the importance of the of the global framework needed to address financial crime. So essentially, while global frameworks are there to ensure countries do what needs to be done to comply with guidelines that will help limit financial crime, the real grassroots action starts with us. Ordinary South Africans running small, medium and large businesses and those acting as customers of those businesses. And I think Vincent's explanation of how the Gupta case would have been looked at from a risk identification perspective can help not just business owners to understand what to look for, but also customers of businesses to understand why they may be asked for certain information. The Gupta case illustrates also the variety of customer risks that you may be required or that you may want as a financial institution uh, account for when you engage in business relationship. And typically, there are different layers of risk that you can uncover when you do screening controls. You, you must be familiar and aware that uh, a, a bank would typically screen their counterparties, their business relationship against a set of watch lists. That's a really commonplace and baseline control to uh, quantify and like, identify and quantify the, the, the customer risk. So you have a different set of watch lists that are typically leveraged. And uh, interestingly, you could have results relating to the Gupta browsers for those different layers of risk. First, from pretty early on, they were known to be associated with the former South African president. Mm -hmm. And that close association to, to a prominent public function uh, makes them politically exposed persons as well. Mm -hmm. right? And under international standards against money laundering, you need to account for those uh, politically exposed persons and their close associates because they are potentially exposed to high corruption risks. So that's, that's the type of risk that you can uncover uh, as a financial institution through screening. And if you identify that risk, you can uh, adjust your, your, your measures accordingly. There are two different uh, sets of, uh, of uh, watch lists. Uh, first, there are what we call negative news. These types of watch lists uh, you know, gather negative information about particular individuals, um, allegations, uh, prosecutions, that kind of things. And that, again, provides really important background information in really quantifying the, the customer risk uh, attached to a particular person. And lastly, uh, I think it's also worth having in mind that uh, the three of the uh, yeah, three Gupta brothers were added to um, the U.S. financial sanctions list, the, the SDN list maintained by the Office of Foreign Assets Control, as early as October 2019. Well, that basically means once you are in that list, it's prohibited, it's, it's forbidden for any U.S. persons to do any business with you. So effectively, uh, assets and property of those persons are, are, are blocked and cannot, cannot be dealt with. So the watch list thing is interesting, and I had no idea that existed. But it makes complete sense. 
and also makes me wonder if there's one for people who make excessively strange Google searches on a daily basis. Like, I don't know, true crime podcasters? However, this also makes something else very clear. And this is not to take any responsibility away from the actual alleged criminals in this case, but there were very many South African institutions who were providing services to the Guptas and their various businesses, and essentially, let's face it, enabling this fraud to continue, whether they knew it or not. The Gupta brothers and their various businesses, for instance, had bank accounts at all four of the biggest banks in South Africa. And those banks closed their accounts in 2016, after the biggest of the revelations began coming to light. And even then, they seemed to only really do so because they were warned that they'd be cut off from doing any international transactions if they continued to do business with people who were suspected of money laundering and international fraud. There are other businesses, well-known audit and marketing firms, who were also shown to have actively participated in writing off expenses for the Guptas in their businesses. That lavish wedding at Sun City got written off as a business expense by their auditors and even launching targeted media campaigns to destroy the reputations of South African revenue service officials who were looking into the Guptas and their businesses. And again, of course, the ultimate responsibility remains with the people who committed the frauds. But there were many, many businesses and private individuals along the way who contributed to enabling the crimes, whether knowingly or unknowingly. We can't really help the ones who knowingly did underhanded things to help them, but there are tools that can assist businesses and individuals who don't want to be on the unknowing end of enabling financial crime. The risk-based approach to signing on new clients is used in the anti-money laundering space, or AML, to reduce the possibility of becoming one of these unwitting enabling parties. So really, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the risk-based approach. So that's really like a cornerstone uh, concept in the AML space, right? So you need okay. to identify situations of high risks and augment your scrutiny accordingly, right? Okay. So there are different areas of risk. There is obviously the customer risk, which we are talking about now. Uh, but there are different uh, different areas of risk that are related to the, the product that are that are being distributed or provided to to, to a person. The geographical risks, what are the jurisdictions involved, and uh, there is a well, maybe less relevant in the immediate conversation, but a distribution risk. Do you use uh, external agent to provide your services? Do you use uh, online provision of services? So those those are all typologies of risk. But the bottom line is, account for those typologies of risks, assess within those typologies, those specific uh, situations that are higher risk, mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, maximize the, the, the judicious measures there. So essentially, the screening that should take place when onboarding a new customer ensures that you're protecting yourself as well as any other unintended victims of financial crime. And although Vincent uses banks here as an example, I thought that this risk really does exist for most businesses. 
really anyone who could be providing a service or a product which could be either defrauded themselves or used as a vehicle to launder money. I asked Vincent what types of businesses should be conducting these sorts of risk analyses on their new and existing customers. Not only the largest financial institutions and neither all and every businesses, right? You are not going to do uh, to ask for an ID form uh, if, you, if you sell a, a bottle of milk, right? Mm. <laughs> but mm. there, there, there are a set of, uh, of uh, professions that are uh, clearly identified in international standards as professions exposed to money laundering risks, mm. right? So there are a set of professions, primarily the financial sector, right? So financial sector in the broad sense, right? So obviously financial institutions, but also uh, insurance company, payment service providers, all of those fintechs that actually deal with uh, with customer funds, actually process process transfers, right? So if you are if if you have uh, the the for activity to uh, to hold assets on behalf of others to process transactions on behalf of others mm-hmm. potentially you are exposed to money laundering and therefore you need to have adequate controls in place so that's for the financial block so to speak mm-hmm. and there is another another bucket of professions that are non financial but are that, that may still be leveraged in money laundering schemes so those non-financial professions include typically the real estate sector, dealers in precious metals and stones, certain legal professions, auditors, um, yeah, that kind of uh, mm. that that kind of uh, professions. In South Africa, we have a huge issue with gangsterism and organised crime syndicates, and the heads of those organisations laundering their money into assets like property gold, precious gems, and very expensive cars. I've mentioned in an episode before that in the first house I lived in when I moved to Cape Town, we discovered we had the head of one of the biggest gangs in the Western Cape owning a house in the same street as us. I filmed with a TV crew last week, and one of the guys there mentioned that they had a shootout in their very quiet and safe street, and they'd figured out that they had the head of an international drug cartel living just a few houses down from them. I guess these guys have got to live somewhere, right? The truth is that these properties in otherwise family-friendly suburbs are often just shells. The gang leader in my street was just using the property to store his Ferraris and Porsches. So that, that, that illustrates the, the need to have those uh, real estate professionals to ask questions, not just take the, the yeah. suitcases full of cash, <laughs> ask questions and potentially file reports. Because ultimately, you know, I, back to my, to my uh, remark on the global framework, right? Mm-hmm. The private sector should be asking questions, assessing the risk. And then when it, where it doesn't make sense, hand over that information, those suspicions, and that over to the competent authorities. They are the ones to, uh, that are required to put the bad guys behind bars, right? Yeah. So it's, 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 it's teamwork, but everybody has to do their share. And let's face it. There are many, many people who will look the other way. Some because they're greedy and don't care, but many because the sad irony is that the worse our economy gets – the more desperate people are to close deals and the more likely they are to look the other way. It's a sad reality. But it all comes full circle when those people are eventually captured and the global community becomes aware that some South Africans 
are quite happy to enable organised and financial crime. As South Africans, we often feel helpless as we see cases like the Gupta scenario play out and see how much damage it has potentially done to our economy. But really, we aren't as helpless as we think we are. We do have a role to play in ensuring that our businesses are operating ethically. I fully agree. To me, it's, uh, it's really like um, you, you have to really acknowledge that the financial system as a whole is is really a, a key infrastructure. You know, it's, it's the backbone for for a striving economy, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's really you have to have that cultural uh, care for making things work in integrity. But having said that, uh, I would still say that it's up to the government and to the to the public bodies. Mm-hmm to uh, lead by example first mm. and to really trust, also set out the rules, but provide the necessary resources to make sure those rules are effectively uh, binding and are effectively uh, complied with. Looking at the mutual evaluation report by, by the FATF. Quick pop in. If you, like me, don't know what a mutual evaluation report by the FATF is, their website defines it as follows. Quote, The Mutual Evaluation Report is an assessment of a country's measures to combat money laundering and the financing of terrorism and proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. This includes an assessment of a country's actions to address the risks emanating from designated terrorists or terrorist organizations. End quote. Okay, carry on, Vincent. What they emphasize as, uh, as the, the, the main issues, the key deficiencies, really uh, relate to issues that need to be addressed by the public bodies, or lack of resources, lack of like, deficiencies related to the, the competent authorities. Very regularly, we see high-profile heads of organized crime and terrorist syndicates being arrested in South Africa. Even when such people are arrested elsewhere, Somehow their path is often tracked back to them having spent significant periods in our country. So these frameworks are going to do more than just protect our public image and economic flexibility. They'll hopefully stop us from having some really violent and scary people living in our country and using it as their safe haven. Absolutely. Uh, the Kupta case might be just the tip of the iceberg with uh, broader issues uh, under the surface. But yeah, really, I mean... Let's let's uh, let's be clear. The situation is not good at the moment. If you look at the ratings, um, mm-hmm. I want to make it clear to everybody everybody listening. Currently, uh, looking at international ratings for fighting financial crime, South Africa is below the international average, both for the technical compliance, how those international standards are, are translated in national laws. It's, it's doing, it's doing uh, less good as the, as the global average here, and also uh, far less effective than the, than the international average. So there, there is a clear, uh, a clear gap that needs to be, uh, that needs to be uh, filled. That's why, to some extent, I think the grey listing of the country. We will talk more about that, I'm sure. But I, I'm hoping that it sounds like kind of a wake up call for the for the country as a whole. That yeah, there is a there is a big problem, and it will not be solved overnight. That's for sure. But mm-hmm. okay, now let's face the reality and let's let's uh, let's work on that action plan. Let's let's work on those. Uh, on those uh, big issues. And I'm well aware that these can all seem like really far out problems for someone who's just doing their job and feeding their family. It also seems like it has no bearing on your life. 
but it really does because all of this works in a trickle-down effect. And the hardest hits in the end are the people putting fuel in their cars to get to work that suddenly costs twice as much as it did last year, trying to buy groceries when basics have suddenly become luxuries, and then not having any electricity to cook such basics when you get home because our infrastructure is failing and we don't seem to have the resources to fix it. Then, it all starts to seem a lot closer to my home and yours. Mm -hmm, absolutely. There, there are really, there, there is the, should I say, upstream and down, downstream uh, effect of failing to address those issues. Uh, let, let me clarify what I mean by that. It's like, if you don't have, the ability to uh, launder the proceeds of crime is, is kind of the, the precondition for crime to pay off. You, you, you gave the example of uh, criminals being able to launder their, 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 their cash with uh, real estate, for example. Mm -hmm. So it, it, that's really the precondition for crime to pay off. Really. That's mm -hmm. one thing. And, and then you have all of those uh, adverse impacts for the for your ordinary citizen uh, if you don't address financial uh, uh, crime. Like the example is obvious example is tax evasion, right? If you if you if you can dodge taxes, you, that's less uh, revenue for the for the government and therefore less budget, right? So, and there are, there are examples for like virtually any typology of financial crime. Ultimately, uh, it has it has adverse impacts for the for the ordinary citizens, uh, even for the trust in the system. So it's really um, it's a systemic issue, basically. So one of the reasons that I decided to chat with Vincent around this time is because LexisNexis has developed a product which hopes to start assisting South African businesses to arm themselves against unwittingly assisting perpetrators of financial crime. I wanted to bring awareness to this product in the broader discussion of financial crime because I think it could be really helpful. This is not a paid plug in any way. I just really think it's an important product which could really help to start whittling away at this growing issue in our country. The product is called LexisNexis Risk Narrative, and it essentially helps businesses to navigate the risks involved in doing business while minimizing any negative impact to the business through stalled onboarding of new clients or loss of income. I asked Vincent to give us more background on the product too. There are additional uh, capabilities and benefits that, that we do provide. The bulk of the capabilities are dedicated to um, really informing customer risk assessment, right? So the, the things that I've mentioned earlier, yes. uh, different different typologies of risks. But we also have uh, capabilities that are more like analytical capabilities related to monitoring transactions. And uh, those, are, those capabilities are different in the sense that you are not going to focus on persons involved in those transactions, but you are looking at patterns of transactions being in terms of amounts, frequency, etc. cetera, uh, that stand out, that exceed thresholds, and that, that ultimately could correspond to uh, money laundering typologies. So that, that, that bulk of capability is called transaction monitoring, and that's important for, uh, for detecting yeah, money laundering. So you, you detect transactions, then you compare those transactions to the customer risk profile, not only their names, but also their occupation, their financial, uh, their financial situation, etc. And then you 
try to establish whether it makes sense or not. So that that's also uh, an important uh, important set of capabilities to really pinpoint where there is a suspicious activity going on. Mm-hmm. Again, the end objective being to file that uh, that uh, suspicion to the competent authorities, provide in, the intelligence to the competent authorities, so they can uh, they can uh, investigate and. They may they may uh, prosecute if needed. Just one other thing also that I wanted to mention: the so back on the customer screening, so looking at watch lists, there are there are also different ways to to look at that area of requirements. There is first, so I mentioned that earlier, the in-depth uh, knowledge that you need to have on your customer base, right? So that's that's what we call account screening capabilities, right? Someone wants to open an account uh, before. Uh, Allowing them in, you want to know to whom you're you're talking to, right? Mm-hmm. But there is also another side of the of the spectrum, which is um, looking at transactions of your customers. And by definition, your customer is going to send money to or receive money from mm-hmm. other parties that you have not thoroughly scrutinized, right? Mm-hmm. So you also need to look at the transactions that your customers uh, conduct, right? But this time, looking at the name of the counterparties. You cannot uh, allow your customer to send money to someone that is on uh, the list of financial sanctions issued by the United Nations, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. If uh, if someone is trying to send money to a designated terrorist, uh, you are required to not do it, <laughs> and it goes both ways as well. So the and so the, the specificity with this is that you uh, you need to do that in real time. Right, so uh, because yeah, you need to you need to block money in and out designated persons, persons on a sanctions list, and also the other peculiarity is that you typically have less information and sometimes less reliable information on those counterparties. Because typically, what will happen is that your customer is going to write down the name of their counterparty. They may they may misspell the name. They may uh, they may abbreviate the name, etc. So like usually the the, the, the quality of the data for counterparty uh, information is not as reliable, not as comprehensive as what you have on your customer. So that in turn calls for more sophisticated, more performant technology to be able to uh, to process that in real time and to make some uh, make all relevant associations uh, the list of uh, sanctioned persons. I also wondered what the FATF grey listing means for South Africa as a country and as a direct result, its citizens. It all started with the Mutual Evaluation Report released in October of 2021. And really, so those reports are, are comprehensive for for the good and the not so good. It's very hard to read, it's very long, but it also, it's, it's thorough and it's comprehensive. So it clearly provides uh, a clear picture of the situation in the country. Let me highlight a couple of uh, findings that are really part of the executive summary, part of the high-level uh, findings by the FATF. They highlight uh, significant shortcomings in terms of the effectiveness of the system, and typically that means like in the in the ability for the system to pursue the most serious cases. They also highlight uh, an issue, the lack of skills and lack of resources by the law enforcement agencies, right? So that's also a very, very not worth it. Various types of, of deficiencies, including like the lack of proactive identi- identification and investigation of laundering networks, uh, failures to detect and recover the cash proceeds of crime, deficiencies in terms of international cooperation. They they also called out the the, the underlying issue of 
addressing state capture, obviously, address the issue, recover the assets, uh, the, recover the, proce the proceeds from state capture. So really a variety of issues that in the end make the South African system ineffective. I said it earlier, but currently the, the, the ratings for South Africa are below the international average. But so both for the effectiveness, as I just mentioned, but also on the technical aspects of things. And FADEF looks at the technical aspects of things by checking whether those the international standards defined by the FATF mm. are transposed in national laws. Do, do Are there equivalent measures to those international standards in the country? And here again, South Africa is, is below the international average. Uh, and by quite a lot. So that's um, really should be a worrying snapshot as of uh, October 2021. The government has tried to uh, to make changes, to make improvements, and to avoid grey listing, right? And so there, there were there were legislative changes that were pushed for, and that um, there were published in the Gazette, I believe, at the very end of 2022. Um, really in the we could say even a desperate attempt to avoid the grey listing, but th th those uh, those changes were uh, absolutely uh, relevant to uh, to improve the, the the situation. But the problem is that uh, in the FADEF methodology, the country has one year after the publication of the report to address as many deficiencies as it can. Right, and here the the the, the amendment acts were published. In, at the end of December of 2022, so a few months too late to be accounted for. Mm -hmm. So um, that's uh, there, there is a timing issue here, mm -hmm. but still we can we can uh, acknowledge the fact that the government seems to have taken steps to uh, improve the ratings. Those amendments, so, uh, if, if we refer to the claims by the by the South African government. They claim that those changes passed in, at the end of 2022 were uh, addressing 15 out of, the, out of the 20 technical deficiencies highlighted by the FATF. The FATF has not yet published an update compared to the initial report. And so we, we can't know for sure the extent to which those amendments are indeed uh, sufficient to close some of the gaps. While many countries and their citizens may not really have any emotive reaction to the word sanctions, for South Africans, the threat of not complying with these international requirements to combat financial crime are very real. Our country and its citizens has a long history with the word, and we understand the deep impact it can have. I asked Vincent for some insights into the possible implications of us not correcting these shortfalls in how we manage financial crimes. So I think you, so I, there, there is indeed a, one has to be mindful of the, 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 the particular history of uh, South Africa with international sanctions. That's, that's cannot be ruled out for sure. But so today, sanctions are more targeted than they used to be. Uh, we very rarely see the broad embargoes that used to be uh, that used to be implemented in the past. So now we are trying to, and what we are seeing are really what we call smart sanctions. The, the, we want really to focus the effects of financial sanctions on those individuals and entities that are the adversaries, right, or that that are uh, guilty of uh, of uh, different types of misconducts. If you strictly look strictly look at um, at the FATF requirements, there are uh, two areas in which uh, South Africa should really commit to better compliance and better effectiveness. Uh, it's uh, financial sanctions in relation to terrorism, 
and financial sanctions uh, imposed in relation to the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. What I want to highlight here is that those issues, the proliferation of uh, weapons of mass destruction and terrorism, those issues are not very controversial, right? I think every country in the world, or nearly every country in the world, agrees that it's important to uh, disrupt global, global terrorist groups or to avoid the proliferation of dangerous weapons. Right. So that, that, that's, those are maybe one of the uh, two of the few areas where the international community is in consensus and therefore implement sanctions at the UN level. And considering the seriousness of those issues, I mean, it's important to commit, comply, implement the right mechanisms for those sanctions to, uh, to, uh, to bite even in, in South Africa. Right. So yeah, definitely an area where I think there is little, uh, political controversy to uh, to improve. On top of that, you have different countries that uh, that use sanctions extensively, so most notably uh, the US, but also the UK and EU. And here it's more, uh, it might be more controversial because those uh, sanctions issuing bodies don't have direct jurisdiction, don't have, should not have jurisdiction directly uh, in the in South African economy. So that's, that's more controversial. That needs to be more looked at from uh, a risk assessment perspective by each and every firm, and uh, and by business interested and business interests and business relationships. For example, global banks in South Africa need to have what we call correspondent banking relationship with uh, with global financial institutions. So typically to uh, um, to have access to international currency markets. For example, if you want to provide your customer with access to the US dollar, you need to have a correspondent bank. In the in the U.S. financial uh, financial markets, right? So to secure those uh, those correspondent banking relationship, oftentimes that foreign bank will uh, ask you whether you comply with U.S., U.K., EU sanctions, whatever matters to them. And, and so oftentimes there is a there is this condition commit to comply with those sanctions regulations. Being on the gray list means that you have agreed with the FATF on an action plan and that you are working proactively to address those uh, those items consistent with the FATF standards. Now, for many um, other international financial hubs, once a country is in the gray list, it is deemed a higher risk third country. And uh, the regulation in those countries mandates that uh, if you have a business relationship, a transaction with a touch point, in high risk third country, you need to apply uh, NS diligence on that transaction. So effectively, what it means is that South African businesses having international uh, relationships that work with with uh, banks in the EU, in the UK, and elsewhere, they will be uh, facing an, an, an increasing uh, compliance burden. They will be asked to to answer more questions. They will have to face a more heavy workload. Having said that, it's worth noting that. As of today, South Africa is not yet written, uh, is not yet added to the UK list of high-risk third countries. There is a there is a lag here because the UK wants to do their own impact assessment and has not yet done so for for South Africa. So, what I'm, why it's important to mention that is that the South African businesses may not be feeling the full impact of the grey listing yet because it's not effective in the UK regulation. Mm -hmm. It has been effective in the EU, but only very recently. It became effective in July of, uh, of this year, right? Uh, the EU has uh, now added South Africa in their list of uh, high-risk country. 
but not yet in the UK. So more impacts should be expected. And also in terms of uh, like broader impacts and more direct impact in the in the country for the broader economy, mm -hmm. uh, there is a there is empirical evidence and uh, like background information on what happened for countries that were greylisted in the past. And there was a, a study uh, published by the International Monetary Fund on the actual capital impacts for, for countries going through the grey listing. They mentioned a kind of a daunting figure, but they, they estimate that the impact is roughly 7.6% of GDP in capital inflows. So uh, capital inflows would be reduced by 7.6% of GDP following the grey listing. Essentially, again, same reasoning from the perspective of international investor. South Africa becomes higher risk. Therefore, when we make our investment decision to invest in a foreign country, we may prioritize less risky countries and we may choose another destination for, for our investment. We may not uh, deal to the same extent in, in South African capital markets, in the sovereign debt, etc. So there, there is really the, the high level impact uh, on the financial standings and the av availability of capital for the, for the country. And that obviously lasts the longer the country stays on the on the gray list. We are still to see an update on the FADF ratings. It's been so it will soon be two years since the the, the mutual evaluation report was published, but still not a single uh, follow-up report, uh, which is somewhat surprising, I would say, at, at, at this point. And so I'm really. I'm expecting and I'm looking forward to uh, to see a follow-up report which may revise certain of the ratings and more precisely to uh, to uh, account for those legislative changes that were passed late last year. I, I would so the, the next plenary session for the FATF is in October. I, I'm not going to bet, but I would not be surprised if we see a follow-up report on South Africa being being published fairly soon. And I hope it will uh, it will show some improvements, a degree of improvement from the from the initial uh, snapshot. So a pretty sobering picture, but one that I think is really important for every South African to understand. The more I do work on this podcast on different types of crimes, the more I come to understand how everything really does fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And there's no isolated person or unaffected area when it comes to crime financial or otherwise. I've said before that I love the unexpected benefit that's come from this podcast in it being quite educational, both for me and for the listeners, hopefully. We've got elections coming up next year, and I think that if we want to make informed choices, it's important to really understand issues like this, so that you can look at the party you want to vote for and ask what their plans are to address very real and important issues like these. I guess we can either sit back and be helpless, or we can arm ourselves at the very least with information and education, and I hope this episode has helped to do that. A huge thank you to Vincent Godel and Lexis Nexus for giving us this background and Vincent's experienced insights. I'm sure my listeners will agree it was pretty cool having a non-South African accent on the podcast for a change. And your insights were incredibly helpful.
if you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.